the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 152, covering the week of January 7th through January 11th, 2019. Glad to be back at the Abbeville Institute. Welcome to the new year and happy new year. And I am very glad to be back here. Uh, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Abbeville Institute. Like our Facebook page at Abbeville Institute. And of course, subscribe to our YouTube page at Abbeville Institute, where we have now uploaded all of the previous podcasts. And we're going to do that per week from here on out. We also have new videos being uploaded uh, concerning our summer school from 2018 and, or covering our summer school, I should say, from 2018, and our last conference uh, in November of last year uh, in Dallas, Texas, on secession and nullification. Those videos are all available in that conference, but uh, we are still working on uploading the summer school videos. So we've got three of them up already. Check those out. They're great. Uh, Also, if you do like what we do at the Abbeville Institute, please consider a tax-deductible donation. You can do so at abbevilleinstitute.org. Just go to our page. At the top of the page, you'll see a button that says support. Click on that, and you'll see uh, donor options. Click on that, and you'll have all our different levels. You can donate monthly or annually, and we do appreciate anything you do to help the Abbeville Institute. Also, if you go to that same webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org, give us an email address. We'll give you a free ebook, and you get our Daily Dose of Dixie Monday through Friday, and also our weekly email, which includes a link to this podcast Saturday or Sunday. Don't forget to also download our Abbeville Institute app from your app store, whether it's on Google Play, on iTunes, or your app store on on Apple. It is free of charge, and you do get your Abbeville Institute on the go. And so that does help help you keep up with the Abbeville Institute. You get a link to this podcast again in that app, and you also have all of our lectures and a mobile link to the website. So all that stuff is out there, again, free of charge. You just want to get that... A mobile app. It's a great way to keep up with the Abbeville Institute. All right, so let's talk about the first week back. So here we are. We're back 2019. We've got a lot of great stuff on the website already. And the thing that dominated the website this week were two articles, or the two articles that dominated the website, was were in response to a Smithsonian Magazine piece, hit piece, on uh, the neo-Confederates. They didn't use that term, but that's what they're going after. So this, uh, the Smithsonian hit piece on neo-Confederates and, and uh, current symbols of the Confederacy or use of those symbols and current Confederate monuments. The sad thing about this particular article is that it's published by the Smithsonian Magazine. You expect this somewhere like Think Progress or some stupid website like that. But this is now being pushed by taxpayer-funded. I mean, this article is critical of taxpayer funding uh, for uh, Confederate monuments and symbols, but this is a taxpayer-funded attack on those things. So I guess on one hand or the other, I mean, they're, they're being paid by tax dollars, so my tax dollars went to both, right? So, I mean, if you just want to say it's fair and balanced, well, there you go. But it's taxpayer-funded. It's a shoddy piece of journalism. It's actually hilarious when you read the thing, that, that they some of the conclusions they make or some of the, uh, are not even based on the evidence. The, the evidence they give completely contradicts what they say. It's absolutely hilarious. And one thing I will say is you can tell the two authors have never, uh, or don't have a very deep understanding of the South or of Southern history. 
They've never read Eugene Genovese, for example. They've never read Fogel and Engerman. They've never read any of these books. Uh, their, their understanding of Southern history is a cursory understanding at best. In fact, I would say they probably read one book to write the entire article, and that would be David Blight's Race and Reunion. And uh, then they read uh, the SPLC. I mean, so that's the, that is the complete basis of their historical knowledge of what's going on. They did travel around the South, and they went to various uh, locations in the South that uh, deal with uh, the Confederacy or uh, Confederate memorials. Uh, they went to Stevens' home, for example, in, in Georgia. They went to Davis's home in Mississippi. So they did some of these things. Uh, but uh, they, they have it, it's a hit piece with, with a surface understanding of Southern history at best. And so we had two pieces that directly refuted that. We also had a very interesting piece on um, D.W. Griffith and also one on Julian Green, bookending the week. So we had one on a, on a two artists, Southern artists, one a filmmaker, one a literary figure. And I think that's very interesting. Then we had a wonderful review of a book by uh, Guelzo. This is uh, Sam Smith wrote a review of, of uh, one of Guelzo's, who's a notorious South hater on uh, Abraham Lincoln. But... Uh, let's start with this piece on the Confederacy at the Smithsonian Magazine, because I want to go over the piece itself. Uh, I can talk about the response, and I will, and some of the things that are said in that. But there's a few parts of this particular piece that are just so stupid, they have to be pointed out. And uh, so I go, if you, if you read the piece, and I want to read three things that they said first. They say, quote, to address this explosive issue in a new way, in a new way. So what what they're saying is the explosive issue is you've got all these Confederate monuments out there, memorials. And so they're going to address this in a new way. Well, it's not very new. If you've read anything uh, that attacks the South and its symbols, it's the exact same stuff. I mean, this is how ridiculous this particular article is. These two idiots that wrote this are so stupid they couldn't get out of their own way. All right, so first, to, to address this explosive issue in a new way, we spent months investigating the history and financing of Confederate monuments and sites. Months. Months. Our findings directly contradict the most common justifications for continuing to preserve and sustain these memorials. First, far from simply being markers of historic events and people, as proponents argue, these memorials were created and funded by Jim Crow governments to pay homage to a slave-owning society and to serve as blunt assertions of dominance over African Americans, except the evidence they give you doesn't say that. <laughs> Which is the funniest part. This is just what they think. But the evidence, we, we've, already, we've already published several articles on this website that directly contradict this stupid statement. But... You can't fix stupid. Second, contrary to the claim that today's objections to the monuments are merely the product of contemporary political correctness, they were actively opposed at the time, often by African Americans, as instruments of white power. But that's not what they say. That's not what the African Americans they quote actually say. <laughs> Which is the funniest thing. And they use David Blight's book, as if you've never read Race and Reunion, you should read it just for a good laugh. It's absolutely hilarious, some of the things that he says in there. But, and this thing is cited as, you know, the definitive, well, you should read David Blight because, and I remember I was uh, in, a, 
in a Twitter battle one time, or a Twitter debate, I should say, with Kevin Cruz, the Princeton historian, who's now, I can't even see what he says because he blocked me. He does this to everybody that that dares contradict what he said. And I, I asked him to give me evidence one time of uh, one example. Give me one example of a where you can find where it says expressly that this monument was erected, this Confederate monument was erected for white supremacy. And he gives me David Blight's book. <laughs> that's his, that's his evidence. So I, no, I said, give me, give me some, I mean, he just, he just blocked me. It, it was, it was absolutely hilarious. Finally, Confederate monuments aren't just heirlooms, the artifacts of a bygone era. In, instead, American taxpayers are still heavily investing in these tributes today. We have found that over the past 10 years, taxpayers have directed at least $40 million to Confederate monuments, statues, homes, parks, museums, libraries, and cemeteries, and to Confederate heritage organizations. Uh, and, of course, they did. For our investigation, the most extensive effort to capture the scope of public spending on Confederate mores and organizations, we submitted 175 open records requests to the states of the former Confederacy, plus Missouri and Kentucky, and to federal county municipal authorities. We also combed through scores of nonprofit tax filings and public reports. Though we undoubtedly missed some expenditures, we have identified significant public funding for Confederate sites and groups in Mississippi, Virginia, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, Kentucky, South Carolina, and Tennessee! Oh my goodness! No way! Not states that had millions of men that served in the Confederacy. <laughs> I mean, what do they want these people? You have millions of people in the South who are related to Confederate veterans, who are recognized by the United States government as American veterans. This is how stupid this stuff is. It's hysterical, which is why I'm reading it like that. It's hysterical. In addition... We visited dozens of sites to document how they represent history, and in particular, slavery. After all, the Confederacy's founding documents make clear that the Confederacy was established to defend and perpetuate that crime against humanity. Except, they don't. And, um, as, again, as we pointed out on this podcast, on our website, dozens of times... We've even done articles on the Confederate Constitution, which is the founding document. Yes, they use the word slavery in it. Yes, slavery is protected by the Confederate Constitution, but no more so than the U.S. Constitution. In fact, there was an argument made by those who were against secession that seceding would actually destroy slavery. Now, of course, there were people that, there's no doubt, that slavery was an important issue in the South. We can talk about why slavery was an important issue in the South. Southerners were, over principle more than anything else, upset that the North was trying to block slavery extension of the territory, even though there were about 20 slaves out there, and everyone understood that slavery probably wouldn't survive in Arizona. But it was principle, and Southerners thought that if the North will consistently violate the Constitution here. Where else will they violate the Constitution? If they consistently violate the Constitution in regard to economic matters, where else are they going to violate the Constitution? So it was, it's bigger. You have to look at history in the long durée, what Browdell called the long durée, and not just the immediate, but 
unionists, unionists, those who were against uh, secession, the seceding state, or the secession of the southern states said, look, if we secede, we're going to destroy slavery. Slavery is better protected in the union than out of it. And we'll get into one of the arguments in a minute about that and one of the pieces that we wrote. But I, I just wanted to read some of this because it's just absolutely hilarious. Absolutely hilarious. Um, now, a couple of things that I want to scroll down. Um, as I said, that these individuals have never uh, never read the deep literature on slavery in the South. There is a lot of it out there, and they don't really have much of an understanding of it. And I think any historian of slavery in the South that's read Genovese or Philogel and Eggerman, who aren't even cited anymore. I mean, this is the when I was in graduate school, we read we read Roll Jordan Roll, which is Eugene Genovese's master work on slavery. We read it, every single word of it. And when you read that book, you're not going to have the same impression of slavery that you had before you read the book. You're going to see slavery as a complex institution of a terrible institution, without question. At any time you enslave human beings, it's a terrible institution. Um, but you'll have a better understanding of the complexity of the institution. And Genovese was no pro-slavery ideologue at all. Uh, Genovese was a Marxist when he wrote this book. Later on, he became it, but he he. He became uh, much more interested in, in uh, Southern culture uh, and considered the attacks on Southern culture to be a cultural atrocity. He said this. Um, so, a political and cultural atrocity. So these people have never read any of his books. The complexity of slavery is addressed quite fully in these books. Or Fogel and Engerman, who took a lot of heat for writing Time on the Cross, which was also uh, a, a, re a required reading when I was in grad. I don't know if anybody reads these anymore. They obviously haven't read Larry Ties. Larry Ties' pro-slavery, which places pro-slavery ideology at the feet of the North, not the South. Um, so all of this stuff, when you put all these things together, they have such a shallow understanding of the South, and then they write a hit piece. It's so funny. It's funny to me, but it's sad because this, this the Smithsonian actually, which is supposedly a bastion of intellectual uh, discourse in America, publishes something so stupid. Um, now, <clears throat> they criticize places like Alabama for funding the Sons of Confederate Veterans. Um for funding anything that uh, relates to the fact that these southern states have millions of descendants of Confederate veterans. And again, a group of people that the United States government, the United States government, not just Alabama or Mississippi or South Carolina, recognizes as American veterans. Um, so... They, of course, bash all of that. Um, they have slight, uh, they take slight hits, not slight, direct hits at people like the Kennedy brothers. Um, and again, it's, it's just par for the course. It's so stupid. The article is so stupid that I think a, uh, an undergraduate, a freshman in college could have written this thing uh, history major at freshman in college who has no understanding of how to get evidence could have written this thing. And of course, their evidence directly contradicts uh, 
what they say. Now, um, this is the part that's really funny to me in the entire article. Quote, it's difficult to imagine that all, con all the Confederate monuments and historic sites dotting the landscape today would have been established if African Americans had a say in the matter. Historically, the installation of Confederate monuments went hand in hand with the disenfranchisement, sick, of black people. You don't say disenfranchisement, it's disfranchisement. But that's not true. The historical record suggests that monument building peaked during the three pivotal periods, from the late 1880s into the 1890s, as Reconstruction was being crushed, from the 1900s through the 1920s with the rise of the second Ku Klux Klan, the increase in lynching and the codification of Jim Crow, and the 1950s and 1960s, around the centennial of the war, but also in reaction to the advances in civil rights. Okay, so they contradict themselves right there. They directly say why the monuments were being built in the 50s and 60s, why in the 60s? Well, because it's the centennial of the war, and so you had a renewed interest. The other thing they leave out is that in the 1900s to the 1920s, monuments in the north were also being built all over the place. Why? Because, let's see, that's 50 years after the war. People tend to remember things 50 years on. How about the 1880s and 90s? Let me see. 1890s, that's about... 25 years after the war. Oh, yeah, when people tend to remember things 25 years later. It's also about the time that Southerners actually had enough capital to start building these things. Uh, and these things were attended, these were grand events attended by tens of thousands of people, not just in the South, but in the North. And I pointed out already, uh, before we went on a little break for, for, for Christmas, that the Oakwood Cemetery in Chicago, the unveiling of a Confederate monument there was attended by 100,000-plus people, including the President of the United States. But yes, these monuments were built, of course, to white supremacy in Chicago, right? I mean, this is how stupid this is. Now, this is where it gets really funny, though. Yet courageous black leaders did speak out. Oh, oh, let me finish the other part. An observation by the Yale historian David Blight describing a Jim Crow reunion at Gettysburg captures the spirit of Confederate monument building when, quote, white supremacy might be said to have been the silent, invisible master of ceremonies. Yes, David Blight, the esteemed Yale historian, who wrote a one of the funniest books I've ever, first of all, and I've said this before, this is, quote, unquote, memory studies. That's what history is, you Nimrod. I mean, this is how this is how stupid David Blight really is. But I digress. Um, first of all, the Gettysburg reunion, North and South. His thing is that the North was duped by the South, and but the majority of Northerners uh, were not in favor of punishing the South. The majority of Northerners. This is something that they believed in before. And it, the, the Republican Party had a very small majority in the North. Um, even in 1864, you're talking about a small percentage. I mean, Lincoln got 55% of the popular vote in 1864. 55%, that's it. If you add in the South, you know, you're talking about a majority of America that was against Abraham Lincoln in the prosecution of the war. <laughs> I mean, Southerners were certainly against it, Right. So you had in the 45% of Northerners, and that 55% might be skewed a bit because of voter fraud, which has been well documented by 
uh, Jonathan White, who is a professor at a college university in Virginia, um, that there was a tremendous amount of voter fraud in the Union Army. Uh, he's not pro-South. He's not pro-Confederate. He just went out and found this. Yeah, look at this. I mean, there's a lot of voter fraud going on here in the North. Tremendous amount of voter fraud. So, I mean, it's just, it's absolutely ridiculous. But he did say, so these authors, so I'm not even going to give you the names because they're just so dumb. They don't need to have their names listed. Yet courageous black leaders did speak out right from the start. Hmm. In 1870, Douglas wrote, this is Frederick Douglass, Monuments to the Lost Cause will prove monuments of folly in the memories of a wicked rebellion which they must necessarily perpetuate. It is a needless record of stupidity and wrong. So, but they said in their thing, in their previous part of this essay that they're going to prove that these African Americans opposed it because they were symbols of white supremacy, yet Frederick Douglass doesn't say that. He says these monuments are... Um, perpetuating a folly, which he's talking about rebellion and secession. Not, not white supremacy. That's not what he's addressing here. So 1870. Okay. In 1931, W.E. Du Bois criticized even simple statues erected to honor Confederate leaders. The plain truth of the matter, Du Bois wrote, would be an inscription something like this, sacred to the memories of those who fought to perpetuate human slavery. Okay, so here's Du Bois... Uh, but his contemporary, Booker T. Washington, actually said that we should build Confederate monuments around the South, the best men of the South. So there's one African-American, probably the most prominent African-American leader in the United States, someone who Du Bois was even recognized as the single voice of the African-American community in the late 19th and early 20th century, saying, you know, we, need, we should build more Confederate monuments. And I'll help raise money for it. He actually said he would. So, yeah. Well, there's one. The most important, in fact. And then in 1966, Martin Luther King joined a voting rights rally in, in Granada, Mississippi, at the Jefferson Davis Monument, where early that day an organizer named Robert Greene declared, we want Brother Jefferson Davis to know the, Miss the Mississippi he represented, the South he represented, will never stand again. So Martin Luther King joined the rally, but he didn't say anything at the rally that was opposed to the monument. In fact, first-hand accounts of King said he never said anything negative about Confederate flags or monuments at all. So they went to a rally. He went to a rally, but he didn't say anything. Well, okay. I mean, that's evidence. In today's debates about the public display of Confederate symbols, the strong objections of early African-American critics are seldom remembered, perhaps because they had no impact on white officeholders at the time. But the urgent black protests of the past now have the ring of prophecy. John Mitchell Jr., an African-American, was a journalist and a member of the Richmond City Council during Reconstruction, like his friend and colleague Ida B. Wells. Mitchell was born into slavery and spent much of his career documenting lynchings and campaigns against, and campaigning against them. Also like Wells, he was personally threatened with lynching. Okay, and it's a terrible thing. Uh, there's that's a whole another issue that uh, the Genovese addresses and in, in Roll Jordan Roll and other things. But uh, I digress. Arguing fiercely against spending public money to memorialize the Confederacy, Mitchell took aim at the movement to erect a grand statue of Robert E. Lee and tried to block funding for the proposed statue's dedication ceremony. But a white conservative majority steamrolled Mitchell and the two other black council members. 
and the statue was unveiled on May 29, 1890. Governor Fitzhugh Lee, a nephew of Lee and a former Confederate general himself, was president of the Lee Monument Association, which executed the project. Virginia issued bonds to support its construction. The city of Richmond funded dedication day events attended by some 150,000 people. Yeah, I mean, so this thing was really fiercely opposed. Mitchell covered the, the celebration for the Richmond Planet, the paper he edited. This is what he wrote. So supposedly these, these African-Americans opposed the monuments because they were symbols of white supremacy. But this is what Mitchell himself wrote. This is their evidence. This is from Mitchell. Quote, This glorification of states' rights doctrine, the right of secession and the honoring of men who represented that cause, fosters in the republic the spirit of rebellion and will ultimately result in the handing down of two generations unborn, a legacy of treason and blood. Um, if I missed something there, he didn't say anything about race. I mean, did I, did I miss something in that particular quote? But yet their evidence is going to show that all of these monuments were built for white supremacy. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this is, this is just silly. This article, this article is complete garbage. Nobody should even read it. The only reason I'm reading it is because it's, it attacks these monuments, and so people have responded to it, and we responded to it on the website uh, twice. And so we had one article written by uh, Ronnie Kennedy, which gets into some of the... It's, it's very scholarly. I mean, he cites mainstream historians. Uh, he cites primary documents uh, about the war. and uh, But this stuff has been said before. I mean, we've covered all these things on the website before. It's a good article, though. It's one that received a lot of views uh, online. And so I would highly recommend you go out and read it. In fact, this was promoted as a response to this particular uh, hit piece by the Smithsonian. Um, and so I think that it's necessary to respond to these things. But the one that I, the, the article that's very interesting was written by Valerie Protopapis. And uh, it's a little letter that she wrote to the Smithsonian. And plus, the Kennedy, I'll, I'll backtrack here for a second. The Kennedy brothers are, are urging people to write letters. They, they actually have a, a form letter that you can write to your congressman to demand that the Smithsonian retract the article or at least allow a response to the article in their magazine. Uh, probably nothing will come out of that, but regardless. But this, this, uh, this letter by Valerie Protopapis covers uh, Lord Acton, um, who wrote uh, a lot about the war. And this is what he said about the war. She said, look, strip away all these things. We can, we can debate the causes of the war, the, the, the social structure, all those things. But in reality, all that doesn't matter. Because what matters is actually what Mitchell said, he was, why he was opposed to those monuments. That's really what matters. Because he recognized, this, this African-American city council member from Richmond, recognized what the monuments actually stood for, which was, and which is what people have said they are, they're dissidents, they're defiance. And this is what people said at the dedication ceremonies. These things represent real American values, which is self-government, self-determination, and states' rights. They represent that. And this is what Lord Acton said. Lord Acton, who, as Valerie said, didn't have a dog in the fight. 
He was from Britain. He, he didn't, he wasn't from the South, but he wrote a letter to Robert E. Lee, November 4th, 1866. And this is what he wrote, quote, I saw in states' rights the only availing check upon the absolutism of the sovereign will. And secession filled me with hope, not as the destruction, but as the redemption of democracy. I mean, think about that statement. You have these southern states call properly elected conventions. This wasn't done by the state legislature. And people think, well, yeah, just some a couple of guys decided. The governor said, we're out of the union. No, these were, and this is, I think, because of the historical ignorance of the general public. These conventions were called by the majority of the people of the southern states and voted in, I mean, South Carolina was unanimous, crushing majorities for independence. This was democracy in action. It was Republican institutions in action. I believe that the example of the great, uh, and, but people say this is anti-democratic, it's the oligarch working here. No, it's the oligarchy. No, it's not. It's republicanism. So acting continues. I believe that the example of that great reform will have, would have blessed all the races of mankind, all the races of mankind, by establishing true freedom purged of the native dangers and disorders of republics. Therefore, I deem that you were fighting the battles for, of our liberty, our progress, and our civilization. And I mourn for the stake which was lost at Richmond more deeply than I rejoice over that was, which was saved at Waterloo. So he's saying, you know, when the South lost, Western civilization lost. These monuments represent Western civilization and democracy and liberty and progress and civilization. I mean, this is what they represent. And Valerie continues. In this letter, Acton makes nothing of all the contentions and assertions as to why what was supposed to be a limited federal government had the right to wage war against 13 sovereign states, exercising their constitutional and God-given right to leave a compact that they had become, that had become onerous to them and their citizens. Everything else, she says, every claim, every supposition, every accusation becomes irrelevant in the face of this brilliant man's clear and concise judgment upon the matter. And for those who demand proof of Acton's conclusion, I suggest that they look at what our limited government is today, quote-unquote limited. It is unlimited, corrupt, and, tyr and tyrannous, rejecting the will of the people and embracing the absolutism of the sovereign will spoken of by Acton. It is not an accident that the Lincoln Memorial is patterned on the great temples to Zeus erected by the ancient Greeks. Yes, we are still paying for the Confederacy, but not in the way your article, she's speaking of the Smithsonian, suggests. Because the Confederacy was defeated, today slavery once limited to a minority in the hands of individual citizens, white and black, now includes us all in the hands of the deep state. Um, so, this is an argument that's been made. Yeah, I mean, you ended slavery, uh, but there's a different type of slavery now. So, when you, when you break this stuff down, you look at what Acton said. You look at what people at the time said. Even these African Americans, these, these monuments represented defiance of the general government, not over Reconstruction or anything else. And people that say, well, they had to they had to put these monuments up to Jim Crow. Jim Crow was accepted. There was there was no opposition to that. It was accepted north and south. Why would you need a monument to something that's already established fact and that people accept? Like there's some major opposition to it. There wasn't any. There wasn't any. Um, 
So you didn't need a monument for that. These were monuments dedicated, as the dedication ceremonies usually said, to the Confederate soldier, to the cause for which they fought, which was, uh, and this is not lost cause, it's to the, to the cause of states' rights, of self-determination, of limited government, of the original Constitution. So all of the stuff that we see is virtually, uh, it's just stupid. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. It's just stupid. Uh, now, the, the book review by uh, Sam Smith, False Messiah, was a review of Abraham Lincoln, Redeemer President, by Alan Guelzo. And Guelzo and uh, Dr. Livingston had an interesting debate years ago in, and, um, at the uh, University of Virginia, uh, which is actually on video. Um, and if you want to see it, Guelzo was quite pompous and um, forceful. But uh, Sam Smith lets him have it. Uh, <laughs> And he basically says, look, um, uh, Guelzo gets into, even though Guelzo is being very critical of this cult worship of Lincoln, he starts doing the same thing himself. Uh, and he, <laughs> he, uh, he starts saying that, you know, everything Lincoln did was all worth it. You know, um, As, as Samson says, Guelzo shows that such fanatical claims were based on the erroneous belief that Lincoln had become a Christian. But in a remarkably subtle turn, Guelzo himself makes Lincoln into a Masonic, messianic figure by virtue of the president's unbelief. After all, Jesus the Redeemer did not seek salvation either. But the war, a mirror of Lincoln's own spiritual angst, produced freedom for the slaves and the preservation of the Union, a, a price that balanced the redemptive shedding of blood and the reckoning scales of public opinion. Uh, but it's uh, this is an interesting review because Smith balances out the, the, the good parts of Guelzo's book and, of course, this very strange conclusion that he has in the end. So we're running out of time. I want to talk about I try to keep these episodes around 30 minutes. We're running out of time. We're a little bit over already. So I want to just mention the bookends of D.W. Griffith and Julian Green. D.W. Griffith is, without question, the most important filmmaker of the early 20th century. He really set the standard. Of course, he's often demonized for Birth of a Nation, which every film critic will recognize. Strip away the sub subject material, which people don't like, but the actual filmmaking itself was transformational. And all of his films were that way. And here is a native-born Southerner who really changed the American film industry. But because of the subject matter of Birth of a Nation, which again at the time was not remarkable. I mean, nobody, Woodrow Wilson called it the best film of all time. Uh, it was unremarkable. But because now, and, and the, the author of the piece, uh, uh, Norman Stewart, says that when he's shown this film to classes, and again, you strip away that part, students love the film. They love watching the, the, the craftsmanship of the film itself. And, of course, there's several other films that Griffith was uh, very famous for. He became fabulously wealthy on these films. Um, and uh, he's um, Lillian Gish, who was his love interest at one time, was uh, a household name because of her work in these silent films. And what's really interesting about that, I didn't know this, but Lillian Gish, um, you know, again, big film star, actress, there was a Seattle-based band, 
in the 1990s called the Smashing Pumpkins. This is, you're thinking of Seattle, Washington. Okay, Seattle, Washington. And um, this band, the Smashing Pumpkins, had an album called Gish. And I didn't know where the album title came from. But it was named after Lillian Gish because one of the band members' grandmothers, I think, uh, talked about how Lillian Gish uh, traveled out west at one point and uh, she, she just fawned over Lillian Gish. So here you have this woman who was in Birth of a Nation um, and uh, was became famous because of that. And you have this 1990s alt-rock band and who would be highly against the subject material, of course, uh, and but they name an album Gish. It's amazing how this stuff comes what comes around. I mean, all these all these little intertwined things. I found that absolutely interesting. Um, but I digress. And then on Friday you had, we had a piece on Julian, Julian Green, who nobody probably most people don't know anything about. But Julian Green lived in France. He was uh, he was French, but he wrote pro-Southern novels because he was actually from Virginia. His family was from Virginia and Georgia, and his grandfather's home uh, was the Green uh, Meldrum House in Savannah, the Green Mansion, which was actually used by Sherman as headquarters. But this is where Julian Green's family came from. They went to France because they wanted to get away from the South during Reconstruction. They they were either going to go to Prussia or France, and they picked France because they said these people know what it is to lose because they lost the Franco-Prussian War. But there's a beautiful part of this particular, when, when Julian Green was actually, he, he was um, sent to Virginia. He was sent to Virginia, University of Virginia, to go to, to uh, university there. And um, he it did so because it, this is where his ancestors were from. And he said this, quote, I love this quote. Quote, the first morning I woke up early and raced to the window. I will never forget that moment. On the other side of a small deserted square, there had been erected a neoclassical building with a rectangular pediment and a grand door flanked by two Doric columns. They appeared so much wider than the walls of the edifice made but simple red brick. This building was the courthouse. A bronze cannon guarded the entrance, dream, dreaming of Manassas under the magnificent sycamores whose leaves were gilted with sunlight. Suddenly I saw before my eyes the homeland of my mother, the South, and what she had recounted to me came back to memory after many long years. In several seconds, I understood all. Secession, the will to survive, the struggle not to become absorbed into a much vaster country. And he knew this was the South was his mother, he says. The South was his mother. He had that epiphany there. It was to him everything. This is what people don't get. And in fact, he was, when he was in France, he was made fun of because he was a, he was a boy without a country. This is what the, 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 the French people, the French children would say. You're, you don't have a country. You're a boy without a country because his country was the South. And so when this article was written in 1992, uh, Alphonse uh, Louis Vin traveled to where Julian Green lived. And he said, today, if one were to visit Julian Green in his apartment in the heart of Paris, one would be entering an oasis of the American South. A Confederate battle flag hangs at the end of a narrow corridor. It was sewn for the family by their cousin, a daughter of General P.G.T. Beauregard. First-person accounts and other documents on the war for Southern independence fill the bookcases near the entrance. Julian Green's personal library is richly stocked 
and the variety is astonishing. As you walk into the living room, you will be greeted by antebellum southern furniture brought by his father to France. To a recent visitor from the New York Times who came for an interview, Julian Green smiled and said, This is the American South in France. He has rendered French literature a great honor by choosing French for his literary medium. But he has a fierce loyalty to the South, which he regards as his country. In his response to my questions, Julian Green said that, quote, The South maintains for all of America a cultural weight which remains unique and which counterbalances the materialism of the rest. When he was a small boy, Mary Aldridge, oh, I'm sorry, Mary Adeline Hartridge Green told her son, quote, Do not forget that you are a little rebel. We are all rebels. As a writer, Julian Green has created a vivid, unforgettable universe, and he has drawn deeply from the well of his Southern heritage. A faithful son of the South, he has had explored time and again in haunting works of literary art, that distant land of his heart's yearning. That is just beautiful. And that's how I wanted to end this week in review at the Abbeville Institute. Until next time, good day. Good day.